Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Everybody, welcome to a special fireside edition of the podcast. Well, apropos absolutely nothing, I have to say, last Christmas, wow, such a great tune. And uh, I just wanted to pop a little bit of the tune in here for your listening pleasure as we head into the holidays. Uh, pure pop genius as far as I'm concerned. And a fun fact, the, the song was recorded in August 1984, and George Michael actually wrote and played all of the parts. And that's pretty rare for a pop tune. Most times these... These guys and gals just kind of pop into the studio, they, they sing the verses and then they're out. So really a true talent, man. I'm, uh, I'm still really sad that he's gone. I think the thing that this song has going for it is what most of my, what my favorite songs end up achieving is that it somehow manages to sound happy and sad all at the same time. And uh, that really just makes for an amazing uh, emotional and musical experience in my opinion. But anyway. Well, you know, we've arrived at the end of season one of Thoughts on Record, and I just wanted to give you, the listener, and all of our amazing guests uh, a really huge thanks for supporting the podcast. What a fun and meaningful undertaking this has turned out to be. Uh, We've especially loved the reach that we've been able to have outside of Canada. When I uh, take a moment to look at the stats for the podcast, it's just so cool to see the number of countries and cities that thoughts on record is being listened to. And it's, it's just really, really remarkable. Uh, and again, our real heartfelt thanks for having a listen. Uh, we've got a great season two lined up and I believe the first episode will be out sometime in, uh, in early January. So for our final episode this season, I wanted to do something for those listeners who have been thinking about therapy, but who are scared or maybe on the fence or maybe even just a little curious and want uh, and want to learn just a bit more. I thought it would be helpful to try and walk you through some of the kinds of conversations that I have with clients about therapy, address some of the common fears and concerns, uh, demystify the whole process itself a little bit, and overall try to lower the barrier to entry for anyone who might be thinking about uh, giving therapy a shot. You know, if we can inspire a few people to take the plunge after listening, then I, I think that's awesome. Um, I'm also hoping this podcast might give junior or maybe even established clinicians some new ideas for thinking about how to talk about therapy with new or prospective clients. Uh, I should add that just about any of the topics here could be a podcast on their own. This is certainly not the, and I'm air quoting here, the definitive take on therapy. Again, I'm just trying to get some of the main principles across as I see them so that you have a better understanding of what therapy is all about and you know why I think it could be helpful. And I guess finally, before we get going, I just want to emphasize that therapy is actually uh, a deceivingly complex undertaking that needs to be tailored to the needs of the individual. Everything that I'm going to talk about today is meant to be general information only and shouldn't be used as a basis for making treatment decisions without consulting with a licensed professional. So with that disclaimer out of the way, let's begin. Okay, so I thought we would maybe start with reasons why people don't or can't do therapy. Um, 
top of my list is that I, I think it's scary to do therapy. The brain is a pattern recognition machine. You know, we like stories. We like to feel aligned. We like our, we like to have our lives make sense. Uh, experiencing cognitive dissonance, that is when there's a difference between what we know and what we feel, is really uncomfortable and we don't like it. It also involves acknowledging or, you know, when I say it, going to therapy involves acknowledging that there are problems and, you know, it forces us to push through denial, which can often evoke feelings of shame, embarrassment, failure, defectiveness. You know, I, I guess we want to be clear about one thing. Humans will almost always choose living in an emotionally convenient story or narrative rather than living in bare truth because bare truth is often scary. It's raw. Uh, it can make us feel like the bottom's falling out, right? We don't have our usual narrative to cling to and to make everything make sense. So if, if you find yourself doing this in your life right now, I mean, don't worry, we all do it. I mean, none of our lives kind of make too much sense. We're all reconstructing a story in retrospect to have it all hang together. Uh, there's been lots of really interesting studies that show that the right hemisphere of the brain comes up with sort of the emotional take on things. And then the left hemisphere will knit together that emotional reaction. It will knit it into the narrative and make it all make sense. So we're, to some extent, we're always rationalizing on the fly. We're, we're all doing it. It's just a necessary part of having managing what's what's really a, quite a complex mind. It's nothing to be ashamed of, right? But it, it's also worth acknowledging that that process could be getting in the way of accurately seeing how things are going for you and to you know undo patterns that might be ultimately what we call self-defeating. So I think at the end of the day, good therapy is a process of radical honesty with oneself uh, a search for your personal truth, if you will. I really think if you have the courage to follow that truth wherever it goes and then deal with it and trust that you can deal with it, your life could look to, could start to look a lot different in, in really positive ways. I think another problem is that people often worry that going to therapy will cause them to lose control, right? They're going to undo this framework that they've had in place or they're going to lose a part of themselves in it. In my experience, it's really actually the opposite. Um, you know, we, we have what in psychology, we have what we call these paradoxical processes. So thought suppression, I think, is the best example. When you try to suppress a thought, that thought will come back even stronger. And part of that is tied up in the trap of language where in order to not think about something, you have to think about it. So therefore, you're, you're stuck in this loop of monitoring something that you don't want to be there, which, of course, ensures that it's there. It's the same with emotions and all kinds of other psychological phenomena. When you try to suppress these things, they actually come back stronger. So really, therapy is actually about leaning in, taking control, and putting yourself in charge of your life. And sometimes this is about fostering a sense of what we call meta-control, meaning that your sense of control comes from knowing that you're not in complete control and you're okay with it. You reconcile this. You grieve the, the gap between what you can control and what you'd like to control and accept that, you know, we're not always driving the bus and that sometimes we have to, uh, it's more about crafting a reaction than it is about controlling things. And I guess I would also add a thought that, you, you know, you actually want to be part of the problem on some level. And it's great news because you can change you, but we can't fix other people, the world, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So to the extent that we can maybe go all in on the one or 2% that we are in charge of in terms of what's going on in our life, that's great. That will confer a sense of control and put you in control 
again, so doing therapy is not, it will not put you out of control. It puts you in control, but it requires building a certain amount of a certain skill set and tolerance of discomfort in order to get a handle on some of the, the difficult things that, that come up when we do lean into ourselves a little bit. Um, you know, sometimes getting better can also mean giving up some kind of benefit, either directly or indirectly, right? So if you've been struggling with symptoms for a long time or not been functioning very well or have been making some uh, decisions that go against your values or perhaps are, are self-defeating in some nature, you know, the process of therapy could, you know, well, I mean, could. It very definitely means having to take responsibility uh, for you know what might be some pretty challenging outcomes in your life or an action or or maybe the the seriousness of some of the actions that you've taken there might be a return of expectations around your ability to work or function within your family um this can be really hard, um, you know, especially if going back to work means you have to go back to work for that jerk that caused, you know, in part you to have to go off work in the first place. So all this to say, you know, there's just a lot of sometimes what we call disincentives to recovery. All of the all of the above processes could really activate feelings of failure, defectiveness or shame. You know, in, in some ways, there's no alternative. Unfortunately, these these feelings need to be confronted. And if you're going to make healthy changes in your life that are in the service of your values and your longer term self, there's going to be an emotional price of admission to get from point A to point B. But that's what your therapist is there for. They're there to help guide, consult, navigate you through those difficult waters and to make sure that self-compassion and, and self-understanding isn't lost along the way. Another thing that I've seen uh, with clients is that, you know, and th this is, seems to be especially true of young men for some reason. A lot of clients come in gripped by a kind of uh, nihilism, right? Sort of a, a what's the point? And, you know, so I like the layout the case is following. Well, when we go with their, their, when we go with the there's no point argument, um, I guess the pro to that is that nothing matters, right? Like including our mistakes, you know, we don't have to feel really accountable or responsible to anything. The, the con is that the good stuff doesn't really matter either, right? We're, you know, and then we're left with this sort of this default setting of life, which is just suffering. So the mistakes don't matter, which kind of gets off, us off the hook, but the good stuff doesn't ma matter either. So again, we're just left with this background level of suffering and just enduring existence until such time as that suffering is relieved uh, through death, presumably. I think when we go the other way where we say that, you know, life does have meaning and that things do matter. Well, I mean, the con to that is that then everything has meaning, including our mistakes and our failures, right? So, we, you know, saying that life has meaning this doesn't allow us then to just dismiss things as being meaningless and saying that we're on a rock in, in the universe spinning around and who cares that we're all going to be dead anyway. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, what this means is that things do matter and that, you know, we, we can derive meaning from what's going on in our life, our choices, the people that we love, the relationships that we have, and that, that the pain of existence is the price that we pay in order to access meaning. So I think what people have to wade through is, you know, do they feel like that is worth it? And I think a lot of times when people come in and they say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's meaningless, there's no point. Uh, it's because they've been, they're in a lot of pain. They've been wounded in some way, and it's a way of protecting themselves from the pain that they're experiencing. Uh, but you know, what I find with most clients is when they push through that and, and are vulnerable and are willing to connect with 
the 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 sort of the, the pain of life and and in order to access meaning things go way way better and yes life is painful and if you want to have a relationship you could get rejected but that's the, again that's the price we pay to access these things and i guess that's a personal choice right someone can say hey I don't want to experience the pain of rejection. Therefore, I'm not going to enter into a relationship ever. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I would suggest that our body is not set up to deal with that successfully in the long term. And it's going to lead to depression and anxiety and hopelessness. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. But that, that's another conundrum that I see come in. Another challenge with respect to people not wanting to, I believe, engage in therapy is that it is the embarrassment factor. One of the presentations I always think of that can be particularly challenging is when people have intrusive thoughts uh, that are aligned with something like OCD. So people have intrusive thoughts about being a pedophile or raping somebody or, you know, uh, assaulting somebody in some way. And importantly, these thoughts are what we call ego dystonic, meaning that they're intrusive, they're unwanted, the person doesn't want to have them, they're extremely distressed by these thoughts. And they they're and they're fearful that these thoughts betray their true nature underneath and they don't want to tell anybody about it, maybe including a therapist. And so what I've seen is that people will stay away from therapy, but when they come in and discuss it, we have a discussion about it and I provide the psychoeducation. I mean, there's just a massive amount of relief, but it's taken them sometimes forever to come in and talk about it. And they've just been suffering so much in the meantime. I think another area, which I don't do a lot of uh, work in, but I've heard from colleagues, um, is that, you know, things like maternal mental health, right? There's all these myths of mothering, you know, you know, birth should be this hallmark experience and that you should, you know, love the baby right away. And sometimes that's not the case for, for some women. And there can be a deep seated sense of shame and embarrassment about talking about these problems. So all this to say, I could go on and on. There's many examples. Um, Feelings of embarrassment often keep people out of uh, out of therapy for sure. I think another fear that keeps people out of therapy is a, a fear of failure. You know that therapy is not going to work, and if it doesn't work, then how am I going to you know remain hopeful about my future? You know, unfortunately, um, you know the, the the path to failure is also the path to success. They are just they're two sides of the same coin, and and I can't think of any way to disentangle this. You have to embrace. You have to embrace the uncertainty and trust that you can figure it out as you go, as you build the skills. And I also think it's helpful to reframe failure. Failure is just learning. You have to be willing to be bad at something before you can get good at something. That's just the way that it is. So it's really self-defeating to come into therapy saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail it within the first two weeks. I'm going to be all better. That would be setting yourself up for disappointment. Better to come in with an open heart, open mind, a stance of humility, humility and say, hey, I'm here to learn. There's things I need to you know, learn about myself, the world and other people. It's going to be an ongoing journey of discovery. I would also say that a lack of diversity and cultural competence among clinicians uh, is also a barrier to people seeking out services. Um, many clinicians are not able to effectively provide services to ethnic, linguistic, or culturally diverse populations. Uh, it's going to be understandably hard to trust and be vulnerable with someone who may or may not be able to identify with your experience and have those and how those experiences have impacted your mental health or even your experience of symptoms. Right. So I think psychology in general is moving in the right, right direction on this. But of course, like society in general, there is a uh, there's a long way to go. I think another factor that can make it difficult for people to engage in therapy is the experience of trauma, especially in early life. 
uh, you know, certainly just as a, as a broad observation, many people, but certainly not all who have experienced early life trauma have difficulty with respect to um, perhaps regulating emotions or maybe uh, disruptions to their attachment style. All of these kind of things get strongly activated in therapy, especially in the processing and discussing of previous trauma. Uh, there can be issues of trust. And even though clients are aware that they're seeing a licensed health professional, they may ultimately believe, even if they know that it doesn't make uh, sort of rational sense, but there may be an emotional take on the situation that ultimately the therapist is going to abandon them or leave them or betray them, assault them. You know, some sort of calamity will emerge in the function of the in the context of this relationship, because if that's what's happened previously, then it makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't you anticipate that that would happen even in this therapeutic environment? So again, in my experience, the um, a personal history of trauma can create barriers to people accessing therapy. I think what's also interesting, too, is that there's a couple of um, cognitive dynamics here as well, where oftentimes clients with trauma in the service of protecting themselves from the true level of pain and hurt will downplay what's going on for them. Like, oh, it wasn't really that bad or even worse, it was my fault, right? And again, both of those are designed to reduce and downplay the pain and, and the severity of the, the experience. And so if you don't believe that your experience was that bad or you believe it was your fault, I mean, you can imagine right away those are going to create disincentives to engaging in therapy simply because, um, you know, you might feel embarrassed about sharing these experiences or, um, you know, you, you might say, well, the, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the therapist this and relative to all the other clients who they see, they're going to be like, oh my God, why, why are you in my office wasting, you know, my time with this like little minor calamity that you've experienced? I've had that experience with clients many, many times where they believe what they're about to tell me is just sort of, eh, it's just a bit of a, a nuisance or thing that happened to me back when I was six or seven years old. So just, I, I just want people to be uh, aware of that. Finally, um, therapy is expensive and access, access to services is a massive problem. Uh, no one should have to choose between their mental health and, and, and paying the rent or paying for food. But unfortunately, this happens all the time. And, and some folks even don't even have a choice in this respect. So I guess, you know, don't get me started on the mental health system in general. You know, society really needs to have a long and hard think about this problem. Uh, however, for, for those folks who are lucky enough to have resources in place that they can access, I often try to get clients to do the following following visioning exercise. If someone said, okay, here's a check for $1,000, but all your problems would have to stay the same, or you have to pay $1,000, but your problems could, could potentially go away, which would you choose? You know, I'm not saying there's a right answer here in this little thought experiment, but it's worth playing around with the monetization of your happiness or, or quality of life. What price are you putting on your quality of life? You know, saving in one area usually costs us in another. It's just something to think about. Okay, so that's just a little bit of a summary of some of the reasons why people may not engage in therapy. It's hardly a definitive list. I'm sure there's others, but th those are some of those uh, some of the ones off the top of my head that I, I feel keep people out of therapy and that I just wanted to address really quickly. I guess I wanted to move now to making a sales pitch for engaging in therapy and talk about some of the reasons why it's a, a good idea to consider this. Well, I think the one of the biggest ones is most problems don't tend to get better on their own. Uh, they, they get worse. And for reasons I'll explain, only more difficult to solve with time. Uh, symptoms of mental illness themselves tend to create stressors, 
uh, and circumstances that create fertile ground for more stressors and there's more stress, more symptoms, things like that. So I often like to talk about this dynamic within the context of the so-called trap track model, which we use to understand the evolution of depressive episodes from a psychological perspective. Uh, the trap acronym stands for trigger reaction and then avoidance pattern. And the idea is that people get trapped in this pattern of facilitating outcomes in their life that generate, make it more likely that the, that to experience a low mood. So I'm going to walk you through an example of a client over the course of four months. Again, it's, it's fictitious. It's a little bit of a cartoon, but it will give you a sense of the dynamics and how they can unfold. And often when I run th clients through this, they can really uh, see themselves in it. So imagine month one, right? So you, the trigger there is you're getting text messages from friends and your reaction, if your mood is a little bit low, might be to feel overwhelmed. This is going to lead to an avoidance pattern of not responding. And of course, the consequence to this is that your friends are going to stop texting. And so if this goes on for a month, by month two, you know, now you've got this new trigger that your friends are not texting, your emotional reactions, you're going to feel guilty. And then your avoidance pattern is that you might avoid planned face-to-face -face social events, right? You don't want to show your face because you haven't, you've been, you've gone off the, off the radar and no one has heard from you and you feel bad about that. This is, might generate a consequence of your friends giving up, you know, maybe completely or, or partially on you ignoring you and waiting for you to sort of come back online. So then say this goes on for another month by month three, you've got this new trigger that. So by month three, you've got this new trigger of your friends have given up on you. Your reaction is you're going to feel worthless. Your avoidance pattern might be that you stop going to work. And uh, as a consequence of from this, you get some negative feedback. Maybe you get uh, let go. Uh, maybe your finances end up in poor shape. And then by, so then by, you know, my, by month four, now you've got a new trigger of poor finances. Your reaction is to feel depressed. Your avoidance pattern is to maybe you start abusing alcohol. This maybe starts to cause problems with your partner, uh, you know, and, and all kinds of other calamities. So what, you know, hopefully what you can see in this model is that, you know, it starts off with sort of a fairly minor reaction of feeling overwhelmed by the texts of friends who mean well, but through avoidance, the avoidance ultimately generates increasingly more complex and severe consequences that will cause a, a stronger mood reaction, typically a negative mood reaction. So all this to say, unwittingly over time, we end up engineering depressive episodes through avoidance, generating consequences, which generates more low mood. So it's way easier to deal with these problems, you know, right at the beginning. And, and, you know, it's very difficult when a client comes into therapy and they've been depressed for a year or two, there's a lot of life circumstances that have built up around this depressive episode. And it can take a lot of work just to get to, you know, sort of the, the, the starting line, right? Sometimes there's problems with respect to the marriage. There's occupational concerns, health concerns, things like that. So if you're thinking about waiting to start therapy, I would strongly suggest you don't because in general, the problem's going to get worse over time, not better. Another angle that I like to discuss with clients around, you know, the, the utility of engaging in therapy is that neg neglecting our values is always a losing proposition. 
I guess I should just mention first what, what I mean by values. Values are those things that we derive meaning from in our life. These are different from goals. They are kind of, they're directions that we pursue that we're never done pursuing. So for instance, if, if one of my values is to be uh, a great dad, you know, I'm never really, I'm never really done that job, right? It's like heading west on a globe. You you never really arrive at west. It's always a direction that you are pursuing in, in perpetuity. And, you know, what we think happens is that when we neglect our values, the brain notices this and then it just optimizes for where we are going in our life. I want to use a bit of a physiological metaphor first to illustrate the principle of how our body just responds to what we what we input into it. So let's say somebody decided to migrate over to a diet of exclusively uh, popsicles. You know, no, no one would ever do this, but just imagine it for the thought experiment. Your body is going to be like, oh, I guess we're on a popsicle diet. And what it's going to do to manage all of that extra glucose is to render you insulin resistant uh, so that it can manage all the excess glucose that is there. And of course, that's going to lead to the accumulation of, of body fat. The person might become develop uh, metabolic syndrome and be affected by excess weight. And in some ways, the body doesn't really care what you're up to. It's just kind of like, okay, like you show me what you're going to do. And then I'll just optimize uh, what's going on inside of us to, to manage where you're going. Right. And it's making the, in its mind, it's making the best play possible, giving the, given the inputs into the system. And so we think neglecting values has kind of the same uh so we think neglecting values has some of the same dynamics around it. So if you have strongly held values around your relationship or lifelong learning or self-care and your body sees you neglecting um, those values, at first it's going to try anxiety as a way of getting your attention and getting you to respond to what's going on in your life, or I guess said in another way, what's not going on in your life. But then if you continue to ne neglect your values, your body's going to say, "Ooh, wow, we're not going in a great direction and we're going to need to optimize this guy for or gal for being sort of at the bottom of the social ladder or worst case scenario, perhaps being, you know, homeless, unemployed, all those kind of things. Right. It's just imagining, you know, following this path out all the way to the end. And so it's going to start to generate symptoms of, of low mood. And if you think about the symptoms of low mood, those symptoms optimize you for dealing with suboptimal environments, right? Make you impulsive, emotional, anhedonic, uh, shut down, numb, uh, all kinds of hypervigilant, you know, depending on the, the presentation. So the idea is that these symptoms are, again, your body hedging against where it thinks that you're going and trying to optimize you for the path that it sees you on. So... If you want to enjoy a better mood, you have to provide inputs to your body and mind that would convince it that you're going in the right direction. And in that case, it will it will reward you with a sense of a sense of optimism and being future oriented because it's then optimizing you for that new path that you're on of moving forward in the world in a values aligned way and in just basically having a sense that things are going in the right direction. From a neurobiological perspective, there's also this idea of the, the kindling hypothesis of depression. This is the, an idea that every subsequent episode of depression makes it more likely that you will have another episode of depression. And the idea here is that initially triggers for depression start off outside of the body, right? Could be like a breakup or getting negative feedback from a, from a boss or being fired from a job. 
And then subsequently over time, it doesn't take nearly as much input from the external environment to cause that depression. It can, it, it starts to migrate over to internal environments. It might be the way that you think about yourself or the, the way that you appraise an event. Rumination itself might lead to the evolution of a depressive episode. So again, the best predictor of a depressive episode is having had a previous episode of depression. So it's important to get on these problems early before that that killing at a neurobiological level takes over and makes it more likely that your brain is sensitized and will be closer to that tipping point as a function of life stressors. You know, I think there's a business case here for seeking treatment as well. Uh, of course, there is the uh, decrease in quality of life and just straight up suffering that can come from the experience of untreated mental illness. But untreated mental illness will also cost people dearly financially as well. I mean, I always think about social anxiety disorder, you know, folks who are, you know, really functional and intelligent, but for whatever, you know, they're not able to owing to the severity of their anxiety function very well within the context of either interviews or if they can make it through the interview, then they have trouble with presentations or being assertive in, in the context of uh, salary nego negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. So untreated mental illness will cost you both in terms of quality of life, but also from a, a you know, from a very real financial perspective. I guess I also want, want to say, too, is that, you know, therapy can be very effective even in difficult cases. And, and I'll have more to say around this. But in many cases, the standard treatment model of once a week for an hour is, is really going to fall short for a lot of people. And I think people need to know that there are better, more creative solutions out there like step care, which I'll talk a little bit more about when we get into therapy. But um, even if your problem, all this to say, even if your problem, you know, you perceive it to be quite severe, you know, treatment can work for you. You just might need a higher intensity uh, and perhaps for even a longer period of time in order to address your symptoms. But therapy can work even for very difficult, long-standing cases. I also thought it would be helpful to talk about what I feel like it takes to be successful in therapy. And this is born from uh, you know, a lot of experience working with people and, and watching very carefully around who seems to do well and, and who seems to struggle just a little bit more. I feel like one of the most critical aspects in this respect is cultivating an, an ability and a willingness to tolerate discomfort. I really feel this is a, a, a huge part of the puzzle. And if you don't have that ability to tolerate distress at the moment, don't worry. That's what therapy is for. It's a skill you can develop. You simply have to be willing to tolerate the discomfort in your body and in your mind in order to get there. And a skilled therapist will help you do that in a graded fashion and, and work within what we call a window of tolerance, right? And your window of tolerance may be very small at first, but over time that window can grow and then you can be, you can be adept at tolerating greater and greater levels of distress, which will typically allow you to access more and more uh, in-depth levels of change will give you access to new data, which will allow you to uh, modify your relationship with yourself, the world and other people. And that's, you know, and allows for some really uh, good outcomes to come about. I think also clients that are willing to treat therapy as an experiment uh, do really well if they're almost like little scientists in their own life and they're willing to go out and gather data. Hey, what if I do this? What if I do that? What if I try this? What if I try the other thing? And I think there's a really interesting angle here where when we take on things voluntarily, that tends to activate more of our dopaminergic system, right? It's more of an approach 
seeking, food foraging kind of uh, mechanism. On the other hand, when we feel like things are foist upon us involuntarily, that tends to be more aligned almost with sort of activation of our of our, uh, our our prey circuitry, right? We feel like we're about to be preyed upon by a predator. That activates adrenaline, cortisol, the HPA axis, things like that. So, and, and those are very different experiences of therapy, right? Of, you know, pursuing the process actively versus feeling like one is sort of being constantly assailed involuntarily by all of this uh, demand and ask and request to do experiments and things like that. So all this to say, I think to the extent that you can lean into it and treat, as, treat it as an experiment, things are going to go much better. The next idea is something that you know, I've taken from acceptance and commitment therapy is this idea of what we call creative hopelessness, right? We have to be willing to admit that what we're doing isn't working. And we're not saying that we're hopeless. We're saying that the situation as we are currently relating to it or how we are relating to it is hopeless, right? The coping we're using isn't working, right? The, the way we've been going about therapy isn't working. The use of substances isn't working, right? We have to come clean with ourselves around that before we can engage in change, um, I would also say that externalization that is blaming others, the world, our boss, uh, is in my experience, a very strong predictor of things not going well. And I would say, you know, yes, we all need validation and someone to bear witness to what has happened to us or what's been done to us. Uh, but I really believe in that, in that, that in many instances, people do best when they assume a kind of radical ownership in their lives and take charge of even just the 2% of the outcome that they, that they are in charge of. And again, I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying anyone should feel to blame for what has happened to them or what other people have done to them. Again, everybody needs validation and people to bear witness to, to what has happened. But to move forward, I really do think that people need to feel like they have a sense of control and that they are in charge uh, of their lives and uh, in, in healthy ways. Again, we don't want to over leverage control, but it's important that people go all in on the things that they can change and move forward with that perspective. What I've also noticed is clients that do really well seem to embrace short-term pain for long-term gain and have a longer-term view of, of, the, of the process. I, I always get a little bit worried when clients come in and I can hear the urgency in their voice and see it on their face that they're looking for tools and strategies. Um, and often these clients want things to get better really quickly, which is actually part of the, the challenge, right? Because the more that you want things to go away, the, the more that they won't. It unleashes those ironic processes that I was talking about earlier. So when clients come in and say, I need tools and strategies, you know, I, I certainly have all the empathy in the world for them. Like who wants to be suffering with mental illness? But it unleashes those ironic processes that I was talking about Another dynamic that I believe strongly predicts whether someone's going to do well in therapy or not is whether they're doing it for themselves or, or somebody else. And of course, those folks that are doing it for themselves tend to be more invested and again, have that longer term view of it. In my experience, it just doesn't work in the long run if people are doing the therapy for somebody else or to avoid a consequence or to get their parents off their back. The work of therapy, if you take it seriously, is simply too hard to do it for somebody else. It just doesn't. Um, it doesn't work. Another thing that I've noticed among clients who tend to do well in therapy is that they have realistic expectations of themselves, uh, of life, of you know their temperament, their their personality. 
uh, I think acceptance and commitment therapy has a lot of wonderful things to say about the inevitability of anxiety or low mood in the context of a human life. And that in many ways, this, you know, our emotions are designed to keep us safe and, and let us know what's going on in our life. When people come in and, you know, say, I just want to be happy. We have to have the discussion about how happiness is just a transient um, state rather than a trait and that it wouldn't be realistic to be happy all the time, right? It, the the emotion of happiness does not contain enough information in it about life to accurately map all of the things that we'd, we would need to be attuned to. I mean, you don't have to look any further than someone who's experiencing bipolar disorder and an episode of hypomania or mania to see what prolonged, unbridled optimism uh, you know, can do to one's life, right? It leads to impulsivity, all kinds of negative consequences. So I'm not saying that people shouldn't be happy, but I'm saying that if we expect that we're going to be happy all the time, we are setting ourselves up for a lot of difficulties down the road. I think too, for, you know, for clients who have a bit of an anxious temperament, you know, when the sperm hit the egg, their, their temperament was determined to be, you know, or destined to be a little bit more on the anxious side you know, realistically, they're going to have to work with that, right? So before they do a speaking event at work or before they go on a date with somebody, it's knowing that, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, distress going on inside their body, but that they still have the choice and the possibility of carrying out valued life directions. They can still go on that date. They can still uh, do that presentation despite the somatic experience uh, of that anxiety. So again, I think people have to work with themselves, work with life, work with what they can control. I think another factor that predicts a good outcome is, and I've alluded to this a little bit before, is that when clients are willing to take responsibility uh, for what's going on in their lives. And again, that, that doesn't mean downplaying what's been done to people or acknowledging wrongs or, you know, we're not, con we're not condoning. That doesn't mean turning around and condoning all the bad things that have happened to us and saying, oh, it wasn't really a big deal or it was okay. No, you know, none of that has to change, but it's about, okay, listen, like, am I taking responsibility for my mood today? That puts us in the driver's seat. And again, that's kind of the best and worst news at the same time. But but I would argue ultimately at the end of the day, we want to be active participants in our life. We want to be in charge of that, you know, one, two, five, ten percent. I don't know what it is of our lives that we are in control of. Finally, I would say that clients that do really well in therapy are if they don't have it walking into therapy, they develop a clear sense of their values. Again, they have a sense of what makes them tick. Where do they derive their meaning, meaningfulness from? And, and sometimes a lot of work needs to be done up front to clarify this, right? If you're going to engage in therapy and pay that emotional, emotional price of admission and, and feel all those difficult emotions, you have to know what it's in the service of and then, and then also to know where your actions are coming from. Right. So almost always, as I said before, almost always when people aren't doing well, it's because their behavior has become disconnected from their values. Again, you know, there's neurobiological factors, there's uh, family systems factors, things like that. But when you look at it at the end of the day, people, when, when we're disconnected from our values, things tend to not go very well. I thought another area that would be helpful to talk about would be what to look for in a therapist. So I would say uh, rapport is number one. Like any project in life, you have to get along with that person. If I was building a deck with somebody, you know, that project is going to go a lot better. If we are seeing things the same way, if we have shared goals around it, a shared vision, you know, we share the same sense of humor or, or perspective on life, 
right? It doesn't mean we have to be best buds. And I have a thought around that as, as I'll go down the list here, which is really important. But at the end of the day, that rapport is really, really important. And if you look at the literature on psychotherapy outcomes, that rapport predicts a huge amount of as to whether the therapy is going to go uh, well or not. But I would also say rapport won't fix someone who doesn't know what they're doing, right? You can have a, an extremely nice person as your clinician, but if they're not skilled in the way that they need to be skilled to help your particular problem, then you're not going to have the same kind of outcome that you could otherwise. You definitely do want someone who is skilled and competent and trained in what we call an empirically supported treatment for the problem you suspect uh, you may have or have been told that you have. So, for example, if you have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and the person offers you psychodynamic therapy, that's not going to be a good fit. You want someone who's well-versed and trained in what we call exposure response prevention therapy, right? So don't be afraid to ask the person about their training and their experience in your particular uh, area of challenge that you want to have addressed. Um I would also say, you know, I'm a psychologist, of course, and I'm very grateful for the depth and diversity of training that I have. But, you know, psychologists are by no means the only health professionals who can be absolutely superb therapists and deliver excellent therapy. There are tons of occupational therapists, social workers, nurses, family doctors, uh, psychotherapists, uh, psychiatrists with excellent training in psychotherapy. Uh, for more severe cases, seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist may be a better fit. Uh, but this is just a very uh, general statement. I would also say that, you know, don't be afraid of working with a practicum student or other kinds of trainees. Generally speaking, trainees are very tightly supervised. They're working under somebody's license. That person presumably is invested in keeping their license. So they're going to want to make sure that everything is going according to plan. There's weekly check-ins. They're reviewing notes. They sign the notes, in fact. So um, and, and seeing a trainee can actually be very cost effective in a, in a good way for you to get high quality therapy at a re, in a really cost effective way. I would say, though, you know, generally speaking, the more severe the problem, the more experienced or highly trained a person that you are going to want to have in your corner. And again, it's the job of that trainee supervisor to vet the case to make sure that the trainee's uh, competence is a, is a fit for what's going on for you. I think another critical aspect of matching up with a therapist is that you ultimately end up agreeing on what the problem is. This should be a collaborative process, but you know, at the end of the day, both parties should be open to the feedback of the other. And it's really going to be hard to get anywhere if you don't share the same view of the problem, right? You, you have to be seeing it roughly the same way in order to, in order to get somewhere. This point here is really important. You know, you're not looking for a friend or a confidant in your therapist. You know, certainly you want to have a friendly relationship with them and you want to get along uh, as two human beings. But you, you want someone who will both respect your boundaries, but who is also not afraid uh, to empathically point out blind spots or self-defeating patterns of behavior or challenge you on stuck points uh, that, are, that are keeping you from realizing your goals and living out your values. This is a really, really critical function of therapy. And, uh, and, and again, there's, there's hopefully your therapist will be skilled in doing this. 
uh, but it's, it's a super important part of therapy. You do not want your therapist to be sort of someone who sits there and listens passively to, to you every single week. That's probably a waste of your time and money. You could seek that out through a friend. A therapist should be actively working the conversation with you, looking to integrate what you're talking about into a framework and looking for opportunities for change and gently challenging you or strongly challenging you, depending on how defended you, you might be around where some stuck points are. Just as another quick thought, I mean, I think lots of clients have ideas about preferences they may have for working with a uh, a therapist of one gender or another. And certainly there's different pros and cons to this. I think, you know, of course, and there's no right answer uh, at the end of the day, you have to be with someone who you're comfortable with, right? And this involves knowing yourself and, and what you need. And this is something to really reflect on. I would say though, that, uh, you know, you could also consider that working with a male or a female therapist could provide a platform for an emotionally corrective experience, depending on the experiences you've had with that gender previously. So I'll give you just a quick example. Um, I see many women for trauma work who have been hurt very badly by men and seeing that they can establish a, a, a rapport uh, a trust and be vulnerable with a man can be an emotionally corrective experience and help to undo some of the damage that was done by those early experiences. You know, certainly there'd be other uh, clients who would not want to work with a man under any circumstances. And, and I would never take offense to that personally. Again, there's no right answer to this question. It boils down to knowing yourself and what you need and what you need to feel safe in the therapeutic environment. I just throw it out there as something to consider as you think about finding that person who's the right fit for you. Finally, I would say that, you know, you want a therapist that is going to use outcome measures and has the ability to step the intensity of your treatment up or down, right? So, you know, it, it, there's many ways of administering measures these days. It can be done electronically or, you know, sort of the old school way, of course, is paper and pen. Really, you want your clinician to be monitoring how you're doing, not only by assessing you through their subjective clinical impression, but also looking at questionnaires. And then if things aren't going well, then stepping up the intensity of your treatment. There's a really nice platform of treatment called Stepped Care, which we use at our clinic, where we monitor outcomes. And then depending on how people are doing, we will send them up or down the ladder in terms of intensity so that people aren't languishing in once a week therapy when they really need twice a week therapy or sometimes even maybe many, many hours a week uh, of therapy in order to, to address uh, the severity of their symptoms and to, and to meet their goals. Another barrier to people engaging in therapy that I want to address is you know, uncertainty around what to expect when you make the call or send the email or, or engage with that clinician. And I guess I want to say this is a very broad description of what can be a very, very, very idiosyncratic process, depending on the practice that you're interfacing with. So just some, just some broad principles. So if you're to the point of making that call, I mean, first, I want you to congratulate yourself on making that call and acknowledge what an important step you've just taken. It's really important to, to, to view that as a win. So after you call or fill out the online referral form, uh, typically the an admin assistant or maybe even the therapist themselves is going to follow up with you. Uh, if your physician has sent in a referral, then the practice may reach out to you uh, directly as well. Likely, they're going to ask you some questions to make sure everything is a fit uh, and, and that the work that they do is a fit for what you need assistance with, right? If, if you have a challenge around an eating disorder and they don't do that kind of work, they're going to want to let you know that right away so that you're not wasting your time and money on an assessment that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, once they've determined that that fit is there, they're going to schedule, uh, likely going to schedule an assessment with you. 
Now, in the, there's almost always a wait time, which can be really disappointing when you're excited to get going. Calling around to a few places might give you a better sense of how busy practices are in the city. Uh, for instance, unfortunately, unfortunately, in the city where I practice, wait times of two to six months are not uncommon. Uh, I don't have a great answer for how to troubleshoot this other than to make sure you just call around. But I would say this, don't compromise quality for timeliness. And I'll have a bit more to say about this uh, as we move through the discussion. Arriving for the assessment. You know, usually you don't have to bring anything. Uh, although you, you might, you know, you definitely would anticipate filling out some paperwork. Although these days, a lot of practices will have some kind of electronic intake package that they're going to send you before you get started in order to fill out all the paperwork before. So you're not having to waste that time during the initial assessment dealing with this. Any reports you have from other clinicians uh, could be helpful, but usually your therapist will solic solicit these through official channels with the proper permissions and release of information and, and all that kind of stuff. It's really, really normal to be mildly to extremely nervous prior to your first assessment session. I just want to say that. And again, congratulate yourself for having the strength to be vulnerable. And don't worry, you know, again, your therapist will anticipate this. We're all very used to this and we try to create as soft a landing as possible for clients to make them feel comfortable. And we really understand that this might be one of the most important days of your life and really, really applaud you for coming in and, to, and, and making that choice to take care of yourself. Um, I would also say that, you know, most of us have done some kind of therapy ourselves and, you know, have some sense of what you're going through, at least from the process of engaging in therapy. I mean, clearly we haven't walked a mile in your particular shoes, but, you know, most of us have been patients and we are going to have a sense of what you're going through uh, on this very important day. I would absolutely anticipate that, you know, going through what we call informed consent, which, you know, your therapist is going to outline all the important policies and procedures and legal obligations. You should, you should definitely know that clinicians always have legal obligations under the law, like reporting child abuse or protecting a client who's endangered to themselves or, or, or somebody else. Your clinician will explain this to you in, in full. One thing that I wanted to mention, because I've just noticed that it promotes a lot of anxiety in clients, is... You know, merely mentioning suicide is not going to get you taken to the hospital or, or I'm air quoting here, committed. I guess I also just want to take a second here and make something really clear that at least in the province that I practice in, Ontario, Canada, psychologists are not able to unilaterally admit a client to the hospital. There's a formal legal process around this of which there's a number of steps and forms involved. And typically, if a psychologist has concerns around the safety of a client, there's a number of ways that this can be managed, again, that are you know, empathic, compassionate, and collaborative. There are instances where a psychologist may have to alert, uh, you know, like the police or an ambulance service to assist a client who we may be worried about. But generally speaking, uh, there's, there's many, many other steps that can be involved around this. Assessing suicidality is a really important part of the job. And suicidal ideation, and especially passive suicidal ideation, is incredibly common uh, among clients, especially those experiencing uh, low mood, although it doesn't go exclusively with low mood. So again, just merely mentioning that you've been having thoughts of harming yourself or that life isn't maybe doesn't feel like it's worth living or that people would be better off without you. That is not going to you know, result in a situation typically where your rights are going to be taken away from you and you're going to be committed to the hospital. I know for me as a clinician, what I'm looking for is active suicidal ideation. Somebody has a plan. They have intent. It's imminent. They're thinking maybe within minutes, hours, or, or possibly even days that they might do something. They have the means to do it. They're feeling hopeless. 
oftentimes when people are at risk to harming themselves, they're using substances. Uh, they, uh, there's this sort of phenomenon where people are awake and agitated for two, three, four days in a row leading up to a suicide attempt. So my, my radar doesn't tend to get too activated unless I'm hearing things like that. And if I were to take an action again, it would all be in the service of, of keeping that person safe. And, you know, Every clinician that I know always undertakes this with a lot of empathy and a lot of compassion and really in a collaborative way in order to help that person in knowing that this might be the worst day of that person's life. They're taking a chance and being vulnerable by talking about it. And we're going to work collaboratively with that person really just to keep them safe. That's the, that's the only goal. It's not about power tripping or taking away someone's rights. It's really just to ensure that they're being taken care of as we would want a family member taken care of on this particular, on this particular day. The assessment itself can take, you know, one, two, or maybe even three sessions or, or, you know, possibly even more. I wouldn't expect to get a ton of, again, I'm air quoting here, tools and strategies at first. You know, getting to know you and understanding your challenges really is the priority at this stage. Um, you know, many clients understandably want to get better as quickly as possible, but that is often a reflection of the exact set of dynamics that have set up the problem in the first place, like I was talking about before. Namely that, you know, discomfort is bad. I need it gone. I need it gone right away, which, you know, and, it, and then it doesn't go away, which creates more discomfort, more worries about the discomfort. And then the person's cycling through sort of a mini panic cycle. So again, we, we completely get it and it's understandable. The person wants relief as soon as possible, but we really need to take the time to figure out what's going on with you first in order to be able to be a best assistance to you. So during the assessment, the therapist is going to ask you about current symptoms, family history, medical history, treatments you've tried before. Um, any medication you might be on, recent stressors, life events, things like that. You know, discussing or disclosing trauma is something that I think understandably makes people really nervous. Uh, there should never be any pressure to talk about something before you're ready. A good clinician should broach this very gently and be really attuned to your boundaries. And, and again, that window of tolerance that I talked about before. Definitely feel free to let your therapist know um, th that there are some difficult things that you would like to discuss, but perhaps that you're not ready to discuss them yet. The therapist should be more than understanding around this. One phenomenon that I've seen quite a bit that I want to let you as the potential client know about is that it's it's normal to have a surprisingly strong emotional reaction during the assessment session that is really quite, again, surprising to you. It's not totally uncommon for people to burst into tears as they start to talk again, in a way that is very surprising and unexpected. You, you don't have to apologize for this, although almost everybody does. They're like, I'm so sorry. It's like, you, you don't. It's totally normal, you know, and it's why we have tissues in the office, right? Like we anticipate that therapy is an emotional experience uh, and that, you know, people do, do their best work and make the most progress when they are vulnerable and able to connect with their emotions. So it's strongly encouraged. I would say this, you know, being truly seen and heard or feeling safe or maybe the first time can be an incredibly powerful experience. And just trust that this is your body taking care of you. It's showing your vulnerability to someone you perceive to be safe and, and so that you can be taken care of. And again, you can congratulate yourself for, for doing this. So once the therapist has completed their assessment, they should provide you with what's called a case conceptualization. And this will usually include a treatment plan of some kind. And if they don't, you definitely want to ask what the plan is. They should be able to give you a sense of how long treatment could be, how frequently they need to see you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this leads to two of the most common client questions. You know, will treatment work and how long will it take? You know, the best and most accurate I can usually tell you as a client are, are using odds from studies of psychotherapy 
and maybe blend in a mix of a gut feel based on my experience. Ultimately, what I usually tell clients is that the more willing the client is to tolerate discomfort, the more responsibility they are willing to take and the more data they're willing to gather, generally speaking, the faster things will, will move. I also have frank discussions about the dose and frequency of, of therapy that I believe is required in order for them to meet their goals. So for instance, if someone comes in for trauma therapy and I really feel that they're going to need weekly therapy for 20 or 30 sessions and, you know, for, for whatever reason they are, you know, only willing or able to do therapy once a month, that's not work that I'm going to do with somebody, right? That would be just a waste of their time and money. It would be unfair uh, to take that precious resource and allocate it to a process that I just don't think is going to pay off ultimately because it's not the right dose, right? It would be like taking two antibiotics when you really need uh, a, a course of 15 days of antibiotics or whatever. So, you know, I think a good ethical therapist will not take you down a road that they don't believe is going to pay off in, in the long run. Uh, they might say, hey, wait until you have the resource available or they'll refer you to maybe a more cost effective uh, resource that can address your, uh, your your challenges. But it's really important to be honest and frank about what kind of therapy and treatment that you need and then cross-reference that with the resources you have, whether that's time or money or, or, or whatnot, and then to find the best way forward. And generally speaking, uh, almost always we can make a referral to a different service provider that's a better fit for whatever is going on uh, in, the, in the client's life. It just sometimes boils down to a longer wait list or, you know, different sort of uh, mechanics or logistics around it. Um, you know, just a couple notes here about process. So, you know, most clinicians operate off of a, you know, what I call a 50 minute hour, meaning that although your appointment is booked from say like 10 to 11 AM, they're going to meet with you for 50 of those 60 minutes. The last 10 minutes are used for documentation, you know, ba bathroom break, uh, return calls, self-care, you know, et cetera. It's your therapist's job, of course, to articulate and maintain this boundary. However, I would really encourage you to partner with your therapist on this. It, it will be really, really greatly appreciated, I can tell you as a, as a clinician myself. And, and as well, most clinicians have a cancellation policy like 24 or 48 hours. And I can tell you firsthand that I absolutely hate to bill for a missed session. It's the worst feeling. No one feels good about it. Um, you know, but given that it's the only vehicle we have to protect our time and more importantly, you know, most of us have four or five people waiting for appointments at any given time we, and we could use that time, you know, we, we will enforce that policy in order to make sure that our, our clinical time, which is our most important resource for in terms of helping our clients is, is able to be used in a, in an effective fashion. So just be aware of that. And again, I can't stress this enough. I hate billing for missed sessions. Um, you know, personally, I try to be a reasonable human being about it, right. And treat clients as I would want to be treated. If it's out of the person's control, uh, I generally generally try to err on the side of not penalizing the client wherever possible. I think that's just the right thing to do. However, you know, sometimes if it's a pattern that uh, that's building up over time, you know, billing for a session might become necessary to maintain the integrity of our relationship, you know, to keep resent from building up and to frankly act as a tool to create an incentive to engage in treatment. A client that is missing a lot of sessions is also not getting the right dose of therapy. So that, that's very important to keep in mind. Okay, so next I want to talk about progressing through therapy. So just to normalize and validate here for a moment, therapy is really hard work and, it, you know, it's not necessarily a linear process. And what I always explain to clients is what was possible yesterday may not be possible today, right? And then you may be able to, you know, you may be on a new plane the next day after that. So you have to expect that there's ups and downs and it's not going to be like a straight line from point A to point B. 
um, you have to really consider that you're breaking old patterns that kept kept you safe. And as you migrate over to new patterns of behavior or, or ways of relating to others or yourself, of course, you're going to feel anxious, right? But this is this is a good thing. It just means that learning is taking place. It doesn't mean that things are going poorly. It just means that you are, you know, you are exposing patterns in your life that are unbeknownst to you before, and you are going to get some new and good information out of this. Uh, things often in my experience get a little bit worse before they get better. Again, it's kind of like a renovation. Um, you know, anyone who's living in a renovation knows this feeling where you come home and your kitchen's gone, you know, like, Oh my God, what have we done? But it's all in the service of putting back that kitchen in the right way so that it works for your life and whatever year you happen to be uh, living in. Another phenomenon that I think I want to let people know about is this idea of what's called an extinction burst. So when, well, I guess this is how I typically explain it. You know, we've all had the experience of going up to an elevator. We press the button, nothing happens, right? And then we press it again and we press it again. And we might press it a bunch of times before we give up. This is what we call an extinction burst. So when we remove reinforcement for something, you'll actually increase that behavior temporarily and then it will go extinct, right? So oftentimes I, I like to use OCD where, you know, when the, per, when we get the person to stop doing compulsions, what will happen is that often that anxiety will go through the roof because their brain's like, Hey, we, wait a second, we had a good thing going here, right? We had a way of avoiding this threat and now you are, you're, you're off the plan. And so I'm going to throw a bunch of anxiety at you to try and get you back on track and get you back onto that safety protocol that we had going. But if the person's able to ride through that extinction burst, they'll see that they'll come out the other side of it, typically with a lower baseline. So if you do have times where you're making big changes and things get worse and you're like, oh my God, the pull to go back to those old patterns is really strong. Don't get discouraged. Stick with it. You're just about on the precipice of making a breakthrough and having some really cool change uh, come your way, right? This happens with smoking cessation too, right? Where people get the most intense cravings just before they're about to kick the habit. And if they can ride through that extinction burst, then they're well on their way to uh, perhaps dropping smoking forever. Uh, it's also common in therapy to get a, a strong burst of hope right in the maybe right after the first session, and that might last a week or two, but then you come back down to earth. Again, that doesn't mean that therapy is failing. That's just, it's just totally normal, right? I would also say this, um, one hour of therapy is really just a drop in the bucket. Most of the change happens outside of therapy. So please, I would say, take the homework really seriously. It can add so much value to that one very expensive hour that you are paying for. You can, you can, you know, add five or six hours to your treatment a week by doing the homework or asking your therapist for a book as a compendium to the work that you're doing. You know, that bibliotherapy can be a very, very nice addition to the stuff that you talk about uh, in session. I would also say this, you know, really try to view starting therapy so that you can end therapy. Again, you're not looking for a friend in your therapist. You're looking for a disruptive agent of change who's empathic and will respect your boundaries. Dependency can be a big problem in therapy and a good therapist should be on the lookout for this. But I'm just cluing you in as the client to this that, you know, you don't want to create a dynamic such that you feel like you can only you know, navigate your life or make life decisions. If you've had a chance to consult with your psychologist or therapist or OT or social worker or psychiatrist, they're there to help you live your life, right? They are consultants to your process. Um, if you find yourself stuck, things aren't going well, um, you're not progressing how you'd like. Well, the first step would be to dis discuss that with your, with your therapist and, and try and get a sense of what's going on, or maybe get some information around how they see the problem. 
you know, sometimes it's better to take a break. It's better to stop, put things on pause and then continue, um, you know, when you're in a better place or willing to experience a new level of discomfort or, you know, any number of things. Continuing on in therapy when it's not working can do more harm than good. And again, you should discuss this openly with your therapist. I mean, maybe you need to fire your, ther your therapist, to be honest. Maybe it's not the right fit. Maybe they're going along with you a little bit too much. Maybe you need someone who's going to challenge you a little bit more, right? And again, that's why I'm being explicit about this. So you can think critically about, you know, how you're going about your therapy. I think another really important part of navigating therapy is having the right metric of success. You want metrics of success to be things that you are in control of. So for example, symptom reduction might be a bad metric, right? Because you're not necessarily in charge of making your anxiety go away. We don't always have direct access to that. But a good metric might be, you know, giving yourself credit for engaging in a really difficult exposure that, you know, evoked high levels of uncertainty and anxiety. So, you know, sometimes a willingness to carry on with our lives despite symptoms is a really good outcome or the best outcome we might be able to achieve at that particular time. So again, when you're thinking about your therapy, uh, you really want to choose metrics of success that you are in charge of, right? Or you have control of. Uh, I'll just give you a really quick example. I often have clients who I send out to do exposures for their homework come back and, you know, they're really discouraged and feel like it failed because they experienced anxiety during the exposure. I'm like, no, 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 no. The metric of success here is that you did the exposure. You expose yourself to the anxiety and the uncertainty. It's not that you didn't feel anxious. That will come later. But in terms of what needs to happen right now, you're crushing it. You're knocking it out of the park. You're doing what you need to do. And clients often need reminders of this. And hopefully your therapist will keep you on track, but you can think about that as well. Another thought around progressing through therapy is like, how do you know when you're done? You know, again, the, this can certainly you want to discuss this with your therapist for sure, but I would definitely say you don't need to be quote unquote cured in order to stop. And what I say to clients all the time is, you know, I would rather have a client be 25% better and know exactly how that happened and, and what they need to do moving forward than to be, you know, 85% better and have no idea what happened or why it happened. I want the client to have the model internalized and maybe they only need 10 sessions for that. And that again, they might not have complete resolution of their symptoms, but they are able, they have the takeaways internalized and they now know what to do. They have the formula. They don't necessarily need me anymore. I would also say that I find therapy works well in uh, doses, right? I don't think it's a great model to continue to see people uh, for, for years on end, if it's not needed, there are, I will say there are exceptions if you're doing trauma work or characterological work like schema therapy or things like that for, you know, personality, uh, challenges that work can take a while, but for, for a lot of clients, they work better in, with small bursts of therapy where they can, you know, they have time to let the lessons consolidate, sink in, try it out, get the data and then come back and consult around stuck points. I think that's a, that's a really good model. Okay, some final thoughts. Life is hard and there's a lot of pain involved, right? And even if you do everything right, this is going to be true. Uh, I really think that so much of what brings people into therapy are the consequences of struggling against things that are inevitable in life, like, you know, rejection, failure, imperfection, uncontrollability, uncertainty, you know, the list goes on. Uh, struggling against these inevitability leads to needless suffering and, you know, really a perpetuation and worsening of the very problem the person's trying to avoid. That's the really, that's the really tragic part about this, right? I think narcissism is a great example of this. So folks with narcissism usually have core beliefs around defectiveness and emotional deprivation. And 
they go into overcompensation mode and act in a, in a grandiose fashion to try and get their needs met, right? Like I'm so good, or I'm going to put myself number one, things like that. Right. But of course people reject them, which leads to an enhancement of their sense of defectiveness and emotional deprivation. This is the very thing that they want less of. So again, when we enter into this sort of fight, flight or freeze paradigm, we almost always generate these paradoxical outcomes where we get more of the exact thing that we don't want. You know, so, you know, when we choose the wrong coping, there is a mismatch between our actions and the outcomes. This can leave us feeling confused, hopeless and anxious and, and, and ultimately depressed. So, I mean, all this to say, I think one of the tricks to life is to make it only as painful as it needs to be. And it will be right. But I guess at least we have a choice. We want to pick pain that's in the service of growth, not just needless suffering. And again, so for example, um, you know, you could public speaking, I think is a great example because it's a common fear, right? If you choose to take on that challenge, right, it's going to be anxiety provoking, but at least it's going to be anxiety in the service of growth and, you know, enhancing your competence with respect to that skill, you know, avoiding it is going to create a different kind of pain and anxiety, but it's not going anywhere. It's only contributing to suffering as your life continues to not go in the direction that you, you know, hope that it did. Right. So you know, the, the solution for suffering is to find meaning in our lives that makes the pain worth going through. Like a life worth suffering for is one of the catchphrases that we use a lot, you know, and you can have this if you're willing to do the work that will allow you to tolerate the pain and distress generated by others, as well as, you know, by yourself so that you can pursue your values, which is where you're going to get the meaning from ultimately. So I really hope this has been helpful and, and given you something to think about. I really wish you all the very best on your journey, no matter what path you take, whether you decide to do therapy or not. Again, there's no right answer. I just wanted to at least give you the opportunity to think through this in a little bit of a structured way. I guess I want to leave you with a couple of things. You know, most times, even the most dysfunctional uh, patterns can be understood compassionately through being a strategy to avoid pain of one kind or another. Understanding and self-compassion around how these patterns came to be uh, often to survive, you know, you know, frankly, impossible situations is so, so important in healing. So understanding, but ultimately taking responsibility for these patterns in, in the here and now can be truly a super powerful and life-changing experience. And I, I hope if you're thinking about it, you'll give your, yourself the opportunity to explore that. I guess my last point, and it may not feel like it, but you know, I firmly believe that you do have everything you need inside of you to take care of yourself in a healthy and sustainable fashion. You know, the key is to get to a place of strength through your vulnerability. That really is the key uh, as far as I'm concerned. So with that, take great care, everyone. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. And uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, starting with season two of Thoughts on Records. So take good care. Bye-bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. 